0: and of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, Sunridge. Hey, if you're uh, joining us right here on our campus, you guys can sit down now. Now stand up. Now sit down. No. <laughs> if, you're, uh, if you're joining us here on campus or online, I just want to say I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And welcome to Sunridge. Uh, if you're a guest here today... And you don't know who I am, you should count yourself fortunate, but I do serve the church here as the lead pastor, and uh, hopefully I'm not the first one, especially if you're here right now, to, to welcome you to Sunridge. Um, as you've just heard, Stephanie loves this church, so you will as well, I'm sure. Um, so a lot, a lot of you might not be familiar with this uh, term, deconstruction, and I wonder how many of you are familiar with that in the Christian sense. Not just taking things apart, but um, if you're not familiar with it, it, it's used to describe when someone who's been a Christian for some time uh, starts to deconstruct or dismantle beliefs that they've had or traditions that they've held as part of their faith. Sometimes they rethink those beliefs, and uh, they start to question uh, traditional authority structures that they see in the church community and uh, often are uh, put off or start to rethink some of the authoritative voices that uh, speak for God in their day and time. And so, you know, broadly speaking, there's kind of like two categories of deconstruction with two different outcomes. Number one, there's a deconstruction that means abandoning your faith altogether. And someone who deconstructs in this way, they ultimately reject faith. They either become an atheist or an agnostic or a nun, if you're familiar with that term, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E. They no affiliation with any uh, religious community. That is, by the way, the fastest growing religious group in America today. And uh, it's it's, it's that use of the word uh, that you'll most often hear uh, in media or in theological circles. That kind of deconstruction leads to deconversion. And so it's, it's more like a demolition of faith. It's like a wrecking ball came through faith and totally took it down. And Paul writes about people that were deconstructing. I'm pretty sure they didn't use that word in the first century. But he's, he talks about them as they, they have not chosen to hold on to faith in a good conscience. They, instead, they reject that previous understanding of faith, and so have suffered shipwreck, Paul says, with with their faith. You might be sitting here today or watching this online, and you're kind of in that process, or maybe you've gone through it, and you're, you're still hanging on, or you've stepped back, but that's one way people deconstruct. For others, deconstruction doesn't mean losing your faith altogether. But for this person, after they've dismantled some beliefs or or uh, their traditions, or how they understand religious institutions, they start to rebuild their faith. So this kind of deconstruction is more like a remodel. The foundation is the same, but the structure is updated. And that kind of deconstruction doesn't lead to walking away from faith, but rebuilding a new kind of faith, and rethinking some of the things that, that they previously believed. And I think that this section uh, that we're wrapping up today, that we've called Add to Your Faith, uh, it addresses the need, the actual need for the modern Christian to go through deconstruction only in a positive and healthy way. And in this small section of Scripture that we've been, you know, kind of like sitting in for the last seven weeks from Peter's second letter, as Stephanie just read the entire passage, Peter gives seven virtues that he says that we're to add to our faith. He says that we're to make every effort to do so. So let's look at those in review, where we've been, okay? In verse 5, he said, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And we describe goodness as an overall, just overall virtuousness, okay? And then he said, Add to goodness knowledge. And we describe knowledge as, being, as gaining more and more understanding of who God is. And that happens by being in His Word, connected to other believers, and processing uh, their thoughts on Scripture. And, of course, our experiences and, and serving actually grows us in our knowledge of faith. And then we talked about self-control, which ironically is not so much about us taking more and more control of our lives personally, but obviously giving more control over to God in those, in those uh, times when we should not be in control. And Peter says, to self-control, add perseverance, which we talked about, is to, to not quit, right? To, to continue to not be weary in doing good things because God will, if we stick with it, we will see a harvest. God promises that if we stick with our faith and we stick with God's way, we're, gonna, we're going to bear fruit. And then last week we talked about godliness, and we said that godliness is just reflecting who God is in the world today. It's not being <clears throat> morally self-righteous, and um, it's it's not being like just just about love, which we're going to talk about love today. But it's really reflecting the true character of God in our world today, and because. Uh, These last two are related. We're going to take them together. It's in verse 7. To godliness, Peter says we're to add mutual affection and to a mutual affection, love. So Peter has said in this part of his letter that faith alone saves, but faith alone is not enough to make a difference in us, not in who we are, nor in how our faith impacts those around us. So that kind of faith is just like, well, I just believe in God, and that's enough for me. That kind of faith is not going to get us anywhere. It's going to get us into heaven, but it's not going to make a difference in our lives day in and day out. And that's why Peter says we're to add these virtues to our faith, if we want a faith that is vibrant and effective. So as we wrap up this last of our series, here's our main thought today, which we've been going with Every week in this series as we tackled one of these virtues each time or each week if you want a faith that is vibrant and fruitful then add to your faith mutual affection and to mutual affection and love. In this final message that we're going to take from Peter's second letter I want to look at three things today. Number 1 I want to talk about the last of these seven virtues, mutual affection and love. I want to talk about what does that mean? Why are they t- why are they two different why are they connected, as you'll see, and what's different about them? And then secondly, I want to talk about how Peter has fit them into this list, where, specifically where he's placed them in the list. And I want to look at a bigger picture of Scripture of, of why that may be happening. And then last, I want to zoom out for one last time on these seven virtues and how they affect our faith and how I think they speak to the current deconstruction that we see, in particular, many of our younger generation going through. I want to talk about how these seven virtues might affect what is happening today. So number one, what are these last two virtues, and what do they mean, and what's the difference? You might be familiar with this, but if you're not, like, you're going to learn something. There there are at least four words in the Greek language to describe love, and they, they have nuances that we don't have in the English language. Number one, there's eros. This is in your notes, by the way. And that's romantic love. It's so it's the hubba hubba love. It's what Elvis had a burning hunk of. Okay? So that's eros. And then there's storge, which is family love, familial love. So it's love between like a parent and their children or their children, children to their parents. And then there's philia or phileo, which is, it means friend, brotherly love. That's why the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, is named or called Philadelphia. And in, um, in the NIV here, that this word phileo is translated mutual affection. We're going to see it's different in other places. And then last, there's agape love. How many of you have heard the word agape? How many of you have a bumper sticker that says agape? Okay. People are like, agape? I don't know what that means. So most, that, that word is most often used in your New Testament to describe God's love. And here, the NIV translates it directly love. Here's how Peter uses these words. I'm going to put this up on the screen. He says, add to your faith Philadelphia and to Philadelphia agape. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, okay? So I don't want you to get any idea that that is, but I have great books great resources. So there are examples in your Bible, in your New Testament, of phileo love, which Peter translates mutual affection. But in Romans 12.10, when Paul writes, be devoted to one another in phileo, even though it says love there. Or in Hebrews 13.1, we're to keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Again, there's that brotherly love. Then there are examples of God's love, or agape love, like in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. That's agape, <clears throat> that he gave his only uh, son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then Jesus in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love agape one another, as I have loved you, so you must love agape each other. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, a lot has been made, of the differences, the distinctions in these words. and then Now, there's some scholars that say we make too much of the difference. But in John 21, we see this distinction come into play in a conversation between Peter and Jesus. It's, it's following the resurrection of Jesus, and um, they're sitting down to have a meal. That, uh, the resurrected Christ is having a conversation with Peter around the fire, and this nuance between the different words come out. In uh, and, and John 21, 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of God, do you, do you agape me? Do you love me? More than these. And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Phileo you. So this goes on, this, this interaction goes on three times. And the first two... Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And then in the third question, Jesus says, asks, do you phileo me? So he changed the word. And then Peter says, Lord, you know. You know that I phileo you. Now it kind of looks like Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him, and Peter's replying, I like you a lot. Which I think, as I recall, that happened to me a lot in high school. (laughs) So that was just a nice to know, not that part, but just the nuance between the words. And Peter covers all the bases, though, here in his second letter. We are to love one another with brotherly love, to have mutual affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to love one another with God's unconditional love. And Peter says to add both to your faith. So how you doing? You feeling a lot of mutual affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ these days? Are you you sitting in a space where you can love people unconditionally you say well I'm really working on godliness right now and you know I'm working on my self-control and knowledge yeah but are we showing mutual affection for each other and are we loving one another with the same unconditional sacrificial love that Jesus showed that's important because these, the, the, the idea or the virtue of loving one another is so important to the Christian today. And for that, I want to talk about this question. What about how the list is constructed? Sometimes you see lists or values in your New Testament And they're put together as opposing lists. There's kind of a contrast that happens. There's the sins of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, Paul, in Galatians. And then uh, James talks about the earthly wisdom that comes from below, but then godly wisdom that comes from heaven. So there's a contrast. I don't know if you've noticed this before, but love is often the culminating virtue in Scripture lists of ethics or ideals or virtues. That is, in your New Testament, when we see Paul or others making lists for us, virtuous lists, the last quality is often love. It's like it's a pinnacle. It's something that's like the ultimate to shoot for. It's the big ending. It's the main thing. Like in Colossians 3, when Paul is describing what it is life to, like to have been a, a person that is not a Christian, and then to convert to Christianity, the differences in our lives, he, exp- he explains it this way. It's like taking off old dirty garments and putting on the new clothing as a believer. In Colossians 3.12, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, put these garments on, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then check it out in verse 14, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The picture here is like you have all these garments on, and then the thing that ties it all together is this this robe or a belt that you sash around, and it snugs everything, it covers everything, it wraps it all together. Love is the virtue that wraps around every other virtue, and it connects each one of them. They are bound together by love. Or Paul puts it simply in his letter to the first Corinthians, thirteen, thirteen. And now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So think about this passage through that lens like this. When we think about the seven virtues that Peter lists, they're like stair steps that we begin with faith and we add to our faith goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, Mutual affection, and at the top of the stairs is love. Why is this book that we have, the Bible, so inspired by God, so interested in the idea of love? Because love is the most defining virtue for a Christian. Jesus told us that in John's Gospel 1334, a new command I give to you love agape one another as i have loved you not even love like love your neighbor like yourself love as i have loved you so you must love one another by this will everyone know by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another it's not that nothing else matters it does peter gave us six ver- six other virtues For a reason. But love is the main thing. And if you've been at Sunridge for a while, what do we want to do with the main thing, you guys? Keep the main thing the main thing, thing, right? If you say, man, Britt, you know, I really want to be a good example to the people that I work with, to my friends, to my neighbors, to my kids, to my spouse. I really want them to see Christ in me. And I know that all of these virtues are characteristics of God. They are the virtues of Jesus. But you know, I don't feel like I know enough. My, My knowledge is weak. And you know, my self-control, sometimes some things slip and some words came, come out that aren't in my Bible. <laughs> you know, sometimes I wish I could debate people when they bring science at me. And you know, like I'd really like to stick with my faith. I, I've, I've been trying to persevere, but honestly, sometimes I just feel like quitting. Quitting. If you love people, you are doing the main thing. And actually, it's the hardest thing. But it is how people will know that you are one of Jesus's. It's the greatest of faith, hope, and love. It's the virtue that goes over all the others, wrapping it wrapping itself all around everything else, and it's what ties it all together. And in Peter's list of virtues, it's the end game. It's the most important thing. And that's the point Paul was making in 1 Corinthians 13 when he said, If I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I, have, I gain nothing. Are we getting the point here? Let me put it this way. And I'm going to th- say this as lovingly as I can. If you, if you are not loving people, you don't have jack squat going on in your faith. <laughs> Didn't I say that lovingly? <laughs> your faith is going to be dry and stale and tasteless. You're not going to be able to live out goodness without love. You're not actually going to be knowledgeable or have the kind of self-discipline God wants you to have, you're not going to be able to persevere. You're not going to be godly in the way that God intended for you to be godly without love. So if we are not showing brotherly love to people, we don't have anything going on. So if you're going to try and pursue knowledge, be moral, be disciplined, but not love people, please stop telling people you're a Christian and peel the sticker off your back window (laughs) and cover up your tattoos and burn all of your What Would Jesus Do? t-shirts because you're not helping. You're hurting. I'm preaching to myself here. Because you cannot express true faith in Jesus. You can't express it without loving people. And when I say that, I'm not taking away from any of the other virtues that Peter listed, but love is special. It's the top of the list. It's the main thing, and we have to get the main thing done. And that leads to the last thing I want to talk about today. The third question I I want to ask. One was like, what do these words mean? And then two was, why are they always at the end of the list, or mostly? And then three, how does this list of seven virtues that we've been studying connect to the deconstruction and, or deconversion that we're seeing today? So, this part is for anyone that would say, that they, they would say, five years ago I was a Christian, but now I wouldn't. This is for those of you who your faith feels flat and dry, and you're, you, you just feel like you're going through the motions right now. And it might be why you feel so burned out and stale and unmotivated about your faith, and you're just kind of over it. It might be why you've deconstructed your view on your relationship with your spouse. It might be why your marriage is rocky. It might be why keeping relationships is hard for you. Sticking through bumps in your relationship. Is hard for you. This list of virtues might explain why you feel so negative all the time. Why just everything is bad news. It's why you're constantly frustrated with Christians and the church today. And it might very well be the reason why the church's witness is so powerless today. The seven virtues that Peter gives us are a guide to deconstruction that leads to a more authentic and vibrant faith. They guide us. Remember at the, at the start of, the, of my talk today, I mentioned that deconstruction can have two very different outcomes. Number one, your faith can be utterly destroyed, dismantled, nothing but a, a, you know the slab is even gone, and you walk away. It's just like a wrecking ball came through your life. And number two, the other outcome is deconstruction can lead to a newly remodeled faith. And I think this is how Peter can help us here. I'm trying to take what Peter is saying here and bring it into our day and time and what people are experiencing. In the podcast, uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, uh, specifically the episode Aftermath, which I recommend for anybody to listen to, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, uh, theologian and author Paul Tripp said this. We should all be deconstructing our faith. We better do it because our faith becomes a culture. Listen carefully to these words. Our faith becomes a culture, a culture so webbed into the purity of truth that it's hard to separate the two. And we better do some deconstructing or we're going to find ourselves again and again in these sad places. And if you listen to that podcast in, the, in Tripp's full quote, it's clear that when he, when he says deconstruction, he is talking about a critical dismantling not of historic Orthodox Christian beliefs or rejecting the oversight of the New Testament endorsed faithful, faithful and godly and spiritual leaders, but he is talking about the influences upon it that distort and redefine faith in unbiblical and harmful ways. And in your notes, I've provided three reasons that people uh, go through faith deconstruction. It's because they're questioning, number one, cultural ideologies that have contaminated their faith. Cultural ideologies that have contaminated their faith. Do you guys have a junk drawer in your office? Anyone have a junk drawer? How about in the kitchen? Junk drawer? Okay. Um, In case you don't know what the rest of us are doing with a lot of our stuff that we don't know what to do with, we throw it in that junk drawer right? Because it's there. It's like, should I throw it out? I don't know. So you throw it in there. And then eventually that drawer, you can't even close it, right? I've got a junk drawer in my office right now. And it, you know every once in a while you've got to go through it and you have to purge it. You have to go through and throw stuff out. Every generation of faith loads up over time with cultural ideologies that become part of faith. And as Tripp said, those ideologies become intertwined as Scripture. And it's like it's right before our eyes and we can't see that that belief that we hold so dearly to is not supported in Scripture. Deconstructing faith so that some of those cultural expectations can be purged from our faith is a good thing. It's like cleaning out your junk drawer. The second thing uh, that people who are going through deconstruction are questioning is doctrines and traditions. And those traditions can be as powerful as doctrines that don't seem supported in Scripture. You see, as good Christians, we're taught that it's dangerous to ask questions about our beliefs. And if anyone does, then we we get uncomfortable. If someone brings a different view and asks us to look at something from a different perspective, we get nervous. It's like we feel guilty sometimes. But you know, it can actually be healthy to go through occasional review of the things that we think that we believe because they do change. I'll give you some personal examples. I used to think when I first became a Christian, that the charismatic movement was from Satan. That's what I was taught as a brand-new Christian. I was brought up in a fundamentalist church, and I worked at a camp for three summers, and occasionally charismatic Christians would come in, and we were like peeking in the window, seeing what they are doing, you know, and then running away going, man, they're of the devil. How can we have them at our church camp? I don't think that anymore, by the way. I used to think that the NIV Bible was suspicious. I was taught in the church that I became a Christian in that the King James Bible was something special. Now, I love the King James Bible. Almost every verse I have memorized is stuck in there in the King James. So when I start quoting Scripture, it comes out with these and thous and heretofores and, you know, all kinds of weird language. And I I can't relearn it. There's too much on the hard drive. I don't think that anymore. In fact, the NIV is, it's my preferred version of the Bible. Let's look at it uh, globally or historically. You probably know that in the 1800s, missionaries to the Native Americans that were here in this country thought that the best way to convert. Them was to remove their children from their households. And so they built these different schools where they would take the children away from their parents. They confiscated them. It was part of the conversion process. And they thought it would be really good that they no longer dressed like they used to. They needed to dress like white Europeans. They thought that that was in the Bible. That's why they were doing it. I can't, I'm like, it's stuck in my head. Uh, the, the movie with Clint Eastwood, The Outlaw Josie Wales, and he's there with that chief, and the chief is telling him about how, you know, he lost his nation. And, you know, he was saying, you know, like, they dressed us up, you know, and told us we looked real civilized. Remember that? That was random. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes things just fire off in there. you got to let them out. Some of you are going to go home and watch The Outlaw Josie Wales, and you should because it's a great movie. Dying ain't much of a living boy. I just remember that too. You know, some of you, on that note, some of you can remember when you were supposed to, if you were a guy, you wore a suit and tie to church, and if you were a girl, you wore a nice dress with pumps and, you know, like, why? Because we were supposed to give God our best. Do you remember that? Anybody from my generation? And we thought that those were biblical things. And we would disparage those who did not do it. These, you can't be a Christian and wear shorts and flip-flops, daggum hippies, you know, like that whole thing. And I'll tell you, like, there's my personal history, there's a global history. I mean, there's a a thousand stories like that, that we used to think one thing, but it changed. And then in Sunridge's history, our history alone, we've talked about this. We, at one time, this church believed that women were prohibited from holding a leadership position or teaching uh, up front. According to two verses in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul written to local churches. But then, you know, we started stepping back and going, you know, women are leading here. And they're doing a really good job. And some of them are great communicators. And we also started to see, as we studied that issue for three years with our elder board, we started to see all these examples in the Bible where women were clearly leading. They were in charge. They prophesied. They spoke the words of God and so they taught. And we have their words recorded in the Bible as Scripture. We're like, oh, we got to figure this out. But it's the way we used to believe. So, you know, it's good to have strong biblical convictions. But I think we need to hold them humbly, not in a prideful way. Because the honest truth is some of them are not going to survive biblical scrutiny over time. So, we don't need to fear questions. Sometimes the questions that come at us are just culture trying to get in. Why can't the church do this? You know, it's like sometimes it's just culture pressing in on the church, but other times you have to kind of go, hmm. I never really thought about that from that perspective. Let's look and see what the Bible says. Lastly, people who are deconstructing are questioning the corruption that they see in institutional faith or authority structures. Come on, the abuse, the cover ups, the hypocrisies of religious leaders who speak for God or those powerful religious institutions, sometimes they need to be questioned and held accountable, and in some cases rejected. It is troubling to many, many Christians, especially those of our younger generation, how so many moral Christians today, moral, I'm putting that in quotes, accept the blatant hypocrisy of Christian leaders today, some Christian leaders. There's embezzlement, there's pay to play, there's outright lies, there's unchristian behavior, there's ridicule, there's cover up of sex abuse and not just, not just sins but actual illegalities that, in an effort to protect good donors or to maintain some celebrity Christian speaker. And the blind allegiance that some Christians have to a church that violates that, or a denomination, or a well-known pastor, or a political party, is actually causing particularly young people to reject the church and abandon faith altogether because they cannot square the Christian beliefs that were handed to them with the hypocrisy that they see. And sadly, this is, you guys okay? Sadly, it's often precisely their orthodox posture of that, of that belief that is driving them to abandon the church because they're seeing such blatant hypocrisy and overlook. And I think, if that, I think that that kind of dismantling is not just helpful, it's healthful for the church because deconstruction of that kind is a necessary process in order to protect and to purify historic Christianity. And I think that that's where Peter's helping us right here. These seven virtues, they're like a sieve. They're like a filter that helps us toss out the junk. They are a blueprint to rebuild our faith on the foundation of faith built on Jesus Christ and his resurrection after we take some things apart. So let's recall where we started in this series. The idea surrounding the seven virtues, virtues that are noted by Peter, he says this, If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says if we have those seven virtues in increasing measure, and he said, make every effort to put these in your life, Our faith will be fruitful, and it will be vibrant. So as we wrap up what we've been talking about for the last seven weeks, I want to propose one question to you. Would you say that the focus of your spiritual life has been to pursue godliness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, I think I said godliness, goodness, godliness, mutual affection, and love. And has it so captured your attention that you are making every effort to see those virtues be a part of who you are? Or, this is actually a second question, have you allowed other things to become primary to your faith? Is your junk drawer full? If it is, it might be time for a purge. It might be time for repentance even. But when you purge it, don't just leave it empty. Throw out the junk, but don't throw out the drawer. Don't abandon your faith. Deconstruct, yes. Clean out the junk, yes. But then here's what you need to do. You need to make some new file folders. You need to make seven of them. And put them in that drawer, one for each of the virtues that Peter listed. You know, those things that describe the character of Jesus. And then make one of those files an extra big folder called love. And focus on those. Take the next year of your life and like throw out the junk. And get back to seeing these virtues as a part of your life. Make every effort to have them in your life. And I think it will blow us away. The difference that it will make in us. In the people that are around us. In our families. That's what we need to do. Now I know that some of you have been like. You've been traveling with us, but you're not really a church grower. Maybe, maybe you've never even gotten to deconstruction. You're kind of like standing on the edge of faith. And yet you have all these questions. And I want to remind you that these things that we're talking about, they're, they're not a self help program. They're not just like, I'm gonna be a better human being. You will be. But they are the outflow of someone who's following Christ, who is following the true Jesus. And maybe you've seen a fake Jesus out there. Maybe, maybe you're seeing faith getting all cluttered up. But what, what I hope, if you've been with us over these seven weeks, I hope that we have a clearer picture of what real faith in Christ looks like. And I want to challenge you consider, to consider the gospel through that light.